0: At a time of high misinformation and confusion, these journalists are responsible for getting the correct facts to Americans about their health care.
1: Well, you know, if I if I was trying to figure out what people want, I, I would say the key words are clarity and, and transparency. And, you know, reporters, we need to do a better job too at talking to people about how the science continues to evolve. So even in Massachusetts, though we have laws protecting abortion
2: access, we would not be immune from federal laws. So this is a case um, that is questioning the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, which is one of two drugs that are typically used in medical abortions and in early miscarriage management.
3: This uh, is a lawsuit that um, focuses on one part of the law, but an important part is the part that, as you said, says that anyone with private health insurance is entitled to certain kinds of preventive health services um, at no cost to the consumers and this judge said that not all but many of those um, preventive services um, should not be provided for free
4: our guests today are amy goldstein the washington post national healthcare policy writer Jessica Bartlett, who covers medical news for the Boston Globe, and Joyce Frieden, the Washington editor for MedPage Today. And this is Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Well, welcome all of you to Conversations on Healthcare. It's great to see you. Amy, let's start with you. You recently reported on a federal judge uh, based in Texas who struck down the Affordable Care Act free preventative health services to everyone with private health insurance. I wonder if you could share with our listeners what are the implications of this ruling and how is the Biden administration pushing back?
3: Well, this was an opinion that came down a week ago um, uh, from a judge that a few years ago had held that the entire ACA was unconstitutional. And that was the most recent case that went up to the Supreme Court which for the third time, said, no, the law is constitutional. And this uh, is a lawsuit that um, focuses on one part of the law. But an important part is the part that, as you said, says that anyone with private health insurance is entitled to certain kinds of preventive health services um, at no cost to the consumers. And this judge said that not all but many of those um, preventive services um should not be provided for free um the um argument on the part of some uh conservative christian plaintiffs um who brought this lawsuit um has to do with who it is who's defining which preventive services are cost-free um their argument being that the um uh u.s preventive services task force um does not consist of presidential appointees and therefore uh, they're arguing and this judge agreed that um, that's unconstitutional. Uh, the Biden administration, which obviously is a big defender of the ACA, uh, the next day said that it's going to appeal this, uh, this ruling. And some people think that uh, the plaintiffs, uh, not to get too nerdy about this, but that the plaintiffs uh, may also appeal uh, trying to broaden the scope of, um, of, this, uh, of this opinion which at the moment doesn't apply to every single preventive service. And the plaintiffs may want to try to get a little broader. So this is going to go next to um, an appeals court based in New Orleans and uh, perhaps higher than that. And we'll see what happens.
0: Will they try to get a stay on this first or the Biden administration?
3: It's um, almost inevitable that the administration is going to try to get a stay to prevent it from uh, the opinion from taking effect Uh, in the motion saying that um the administration is going to appeal the justice department did not include in there uh the request for the um stay but it may come as part of the details
0: of the appeal okay thank you
4: well, Joyce, you've also uh, covered uh, this particular ruling, and, and I have to say, uh, you know, out in the field, this one made people sit up and pay attention uh, when this news came out, because I think it's been a somewhat popular in, in many areas, popular. But I understand uh, that it won't affect all preventive services, and I think, Amy, that's what you were alluding to, but why uh, would screenings like uh, mammography or colorectal cancer screening still be covered uh as uh, requiring uh, full coverage by their insurance, but other screenings, what's the distinction there, Joyce? Well, as I understand it,
1: um, the services that are affected are those that were recommended after uh, the enactment of the Affordable Care Act in March of 2010. So since colonography and mammography uh, came before that, uh, they are not affected by the ruling. Uh, But other things like... Uh, lung cancer screening and skin cancer screening would be affected. So if people have to start uh, paying a copay for something like lung cancer screening, which involves a CT scan, it could get pretty expensive for them.
4: I see. Thank you very much for that.
0: Let's uh, turn to Jessica Bartley with the Boston Globe. Jessica, while you're based in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, you and your colleagues are keeping a close eye on an expected ruling from a federal judge in Texas, a different federal judge than the one we were talking with Amy about that could stop medical abortion. Uh, Take us through uh, what could happen uh, very soon uh, with that ruling.
2: Yeah, so even in Massachusetts, though we have laws protecting abortion access, we would not be immune from federal laws. So this is a case um, that is questioning The FDA's approval of mifepristone, which is one of two drugs that are typically used in medical abortions and in early miscarriage management. Um, In Massachusetts, half of all abortions are done via medical abortions. And so while abortion would still remain legal in Massachusetts, um, there could be a number of things that happen depending on how the judge rules Um, the judge could reverse the FDA's um, or or could reinstate the restrictions that um, the federal government lifted in 2021 that basically allowed telehealth um, medical abortions to take place. The judge could completely withdraw the FDA approval of mifepristone, which um, a number of providers here said would force them to revert to one drug regimen. Now, before mifepristone was approved, One drug was how they took care of medical abortions and early miscarriage management, but it's not as effective and um, it has more side effects because sometimes the dosage has to be higher. So more people could opt to do surgical abortions, which could further stress a very stressed healthcare system that kind of doesn't have capacity right now. There is also some concern that the judge could reference an 1873 law known as the Comstock Act, which um, forbade the US Postal Service from delivering medication for abortion, among other things. And so while the current case is focused on if a Pristone invoking the Comstock Act could imperil misoprostol, that second drug um, in future cases. So there's a number of potential outcomes here and it really will determine on um, what the judge decides.
4: Well, Amy, uh, as we record this interview, states are uh, really in the process of beginning to cut off about 15 million Americans Uh, from the Medicaid rolls as the pandemic-related benefits and rules come to an end. And you've uh, done some reporting uh, saying there's estimates that nearly 7 million people could lose their Medicaid eligibility uh, by mistake, really, even though they're still uh, eligible during this unwinding period. How are Medicaid administrators preparing people in their states? And what are you hearing from the experts about the possible consequences of this?
3: Well, let me first explain what's going on here because this is um, like the court opinion we were just talking about. This is a very big deal. Um, Over the time of the pandemic, since um, early 2020, the number of people on Medicaid in this country has grown a lot. It's grown by about a third to about 85 million people, a lot of people. And it's grown for two reasons. One, because uh, particularly early in the pandemic, there were people losing jobs and losing health benefits um who are falling onto medicaid because they were now poor enough in their states the other reason um which relates to what's going on now is that uh for the first time states stopped uh doing an annual review of who is eligible for medicaid and they did that because of a first federal uh covid relief bill Um, that offered states a little bit of extra money to pay for Medicaid if they promised that they wouldn't knock anybody off Medicaid while they were getting that extra money. Um, And you can imagine every state said, okay, we'll go along. Um, Mm -hmm. So that promise is ending now. Um, The federal government said that states could begin uh, deciding who was eligible for Medicaid. And um, as you said, um, Under the federal rules that have been established for this um, states can start doing these reviews, either in April, which five states are doing. uh, May, June, July, I mean, it's coming up very soon and states are for the most part going to spend a year or so going through their roles to figure out who seems to be eligible. And as you said, the federal government has estimated that perhaps 15,000 15 million people appear to be ineligible. How many of those ultimately get knocked off the rolls? You know, it's kind of a time will tell thing, mm-hmm. um, but that's the federal projection.
0: Well, it's now, it's going to be a real disaster, I think, uh, all fifty states and the territories all at once, uh, because it's not only the people who are ineligible economically, but for people who don't pick up their email or have all the documentation to go in, uh, it, it could it, it could really unravel.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, it's going to be two groups of people losing Medicaid. One, people who are no longer eligible because they are earning too much money now, um, or other reason they've moved out of state. Um, But also people who, as you say, uh, didn't respond to notices that every state's sending out saying, hey, you've got to pay attention to now. Um, You need to let us know. a whole lot of things about you so we can decide whether you still deserve Medicaid. <laughs> and different states are being um, assertive about that to very different degrees. Um, so it's likely that in some states, people are going to be getting a lot more nudging to pay attention and really make sure that they're given an opportunity for their state to figure out whether they still should get Medicaid. And other states, people are just going to be falling off the rolls.
0: Right. And Jessica, what does the situation look like in your part of the country as the pandemic-related emergency comes to an end? And I'm wondering how Massachusetts is preparing, but maybe other governments. I know Massachusetts has the 1115 waiver up there, lots of interesting things going on. But how do you assess the lay of the land across the country?
2: Yeah, well, we're actively involved here in um, the Medicaid redetermination effort. The state is really ramping up its efforts to make sure that the people who lose Medicaid coverage are because they're no longer eligible, not because they um, miss some administrative right. mm-hmm. process. Um, but also, as the federal pandemic winds down, the state too has declared an end to the emergency and has set a, an end date. Um, now, as part of that. Um, some of the things will remain. The governor has um, or will file legislation to keep certain things. Um, But overall, health experts say that this is um, signaling a shift from a pandemic to an endemic stage. Um, And the biggest debate that's happening right now is as part of that unwinding of the emergency, at least in Massachusetts, the mandate that masks remain in healthcare settings um, will go away. And so there's a lot of debate about whether um, healthcare care facilities should keep masking requirements, if it should be decided on an ad hoc basis, um, which health experts weigh in on this, if it's too early. And so there's a lot of discussion about that as the state tries to shift from an emergency state to more uh, an endemic state of the crisis.
4: Well, Jessica, I think you must have been hanging around the water coolers within our organization today because that's certainly a... Uh... Not that there's really water coolers anymore anywhere, <laughs> but that's certainly a the a, bubbler as we call it in a Massachusetts. The top of their individual water bottles. Yeah. That's <laughs> what we've gone to. Um, but you know, there's there's coverage, and then there's there's care. And uh, I think uh, Joyce and Jessica, both of you, have reported on the shrinking pool of primary care uh, physicians, in particular in this country. Uh, Are there initiatives that uh, either or both of you are seeing that you think are successfully uh, addressing the issue?
1: Um, Well, you know, of course, like so many things, this all comes down to the money. So um, uh, one thing that that has happened that that may help the federal government's doing a lot in this area and particularly. Uh, You know, they provide the training money for primary care physicians and um, other doctors, so at the end of 2021 Congress voted to add about a thousand more training slots and they're trying to target rural and underserved areas where the primary care shortage is the most acute. And then there are more recent things going on. Actually, about two weeks ago, a group of 30 healthcare organizations uh, wrote to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services asking them to boost payments for primary care doctors who participate in a particular kind of Medicare program called Mm -hmm. the Medicare Shared Savings Mm -hmm. Program. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I thought was interesting in a webinar I uh, covered uh, last week was a a woman who was a former Medicare official. And um, she was suggesting splitting the way doctors are paid into two. Mm -hmm. So right now there's one what's called the Physician Fee Schedule. She's saying you should have one fee schedule for mostly primary care services, what they call evaluation and management, and then a separate fee schedule for tests and procedures because that kind of gets more of the political blowback. So it'd be easier to raise uh, the rates on the primary care schedule. So I thought that was interesting as well.
2: Massachusetts, The state has uh, undertaken an effort to at least establish a baseline for primary care doctors and the shortages they're in to identify where action is needed and where investment is needed, but also to track how well their mitigation strategies work. Mm -hmm. Um, And in talking to primary care doctors, you know, a number of them said a good area to focus on. Um, is the reimbursements, given that they are lower often for primary care than for specialists. And that impacts the pipeline of people who are even willing to go into the field versus some other more lucrative fields to pay back that medical debt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And,
0: and there's so much going on in terms of uh, ACO reach. That is, uh, as Joyce mentioned, the, uh, the shared savings, which has no downside, only has upside uh, opportunity for people. So a lot going on. Amy, I'm thinking about the locus because every so often I hear that the Medicare trustees are estimating (laughs) that the fund is expected to be insolvent. In this case, by 2031, Uh, I'm wondering if there's time or appetite uh, appetite, uh, in Congress to be able to solve this. They can't pass the the debt issue. Uh, Do you think there's some fix that can uh, come about in uh, this Congress?
3: Um, Before I get to the um, Medicare solvency question, let me just go back for a split second to uh, the question of not quite enough primary care doctors. I mean, this whole question of the mix of primary care versus specialists in this country has been an issue for a very long time. It's not something that's just emerging. Mm -hmm. And the Affordable Care Act, in fact, um, you know, more than a decade ago now, tried to address that by increasing payments for uh, um, for people going into primary care. Um, and there have long been um, efforts within HHS uh, to try to um, uh, provide you know, loan forgiveness and other kinds of financial help to doctors in training who are willing to go into primary care, particularly in areas of the country where doctors are scarce. Um, suffice it to say, those efforts haven't um, all succeeded, which is why we're still talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. As for the Medicare um, trustees report, this is a report that comes out um, every year. It comes out together with uh, the forecast for Medicare and Social Security, which are obviously two big pillars of this country's social safety net. And as you say, um, the report that came out just a few days ago uh, said that it was going to be 2031 uh, when uh, the Medicare hospital trust fund this is just the portion of medicare um, that covers hospital bills um not going to your doctor or stuff like that the hospital trust fund was going to uh not have enough money to fully pay what it should um starting in uh 2031 that's three years later actually than last year when it was predicted to be in uh 2028 but either way you can see that's pretty close so you asked about both um are there ideas and is there the will? Yeah. And um, the question of political will is a very big deal <laughs> um, because um, there have been, I mean, I've been writing about healthcare nationally since uh, the late 90s, and I was writing about healthcare locally before that for a number of years. Um, and there have been many efforts to try to somehow uh, gin up political consensus to do something about. Uh, THESE IMMINENT SHORTAGES um, AND EVERY TIME THERE'S BEEN A ROUND OF EITHER A CONGRESSIONALLY MANDATED TASK force OR a PRESIDENTIALLY MANDATED COMMISSION, um, PEOPLE HAVE SAID, WELL, WE BETTER DO SOMETHING NOW BECAUSE IF WE DON'T DO IT SOON, IT'S GOING TO BE EVEN HARDER LATER AND LATER KEEPS COMING ALONG. Um, AT THE MOMENT, um, uh, THE BIDEN ADMINISTRATION HAS RECENTLY IN ITS um, LATEST BUDGET PROPOSAL PUT OUT A PLAN uh, that would increase the solven- extend the solvency of Medicare for about 25 more years. Um, it would do it um, in a bunch of ways, but partly by um, increasing taxes on um, wealthy people earning more than $400,000 mm-hmm. um, a year. Um, Republicans are against that. Uh, the White House is against what Republicans have proposed. Um, it doesn't look like it's going anywhere too fast, at least at the moment.
0: Yeah.
4: Well, Amy, I I will say that uh, we're both veterans of many decades of issues, solutions, issues, uh, solutions. And Joyce, I want to uh, ask you about um, sort of where the American public is uh, from what you see around their uh, assessment, their trust uh, in public health as we've come out of, hopefully, uh, certainly the worst of the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, You wrote about a study that basically said that Americans... Don't expect their public health leaders to be perfect on this. To make mistakes, uh, they understand that it's not uh, a given that you're going to be able to immediately contain an outbreak of an infectious disease. But overall, what we mostly read is trust uh, in the public health sector is down. What What are you seeing as you do your uh, reporting and talk to people? Well, you know,
1: if I if I was trying to figure out what people want, I, I would say the keywords are clarity and, and transparency. And, you know, reporters, we need to do a better job, too, at talking to people about how the science continues to evolve. So instead of getting mad at the CDC for saying, oh, masks don't protect you from COVID one day, and then saying the opposite the other day, you know, the, the idea, letting them know the idea that as evidence comes in, things change, and and the advice is going to change. And uh, you know, I think that this is particularly important right now when everything's gotten so politicized, especially uh, with the whole health freedom movement of people saying that they should be free to wear masks or not wear masks or vaccinate or not vaccinate. So I think that's what I get the sense that people mm-hmm. are looking for. Mm.
0: Joyce, I'm, I'm wondering if you can shine some light on the Biden administration uh, announcement to modernize the organ uh, procurement system. Uh, hopefully, to give some greater accountability and transparency. Uh, I, I've read that it's going to double the resources available. I don't know if that means it's going to double the number of organ uh, recipients or donors out there. But uh, you know, the current process seems to be very antiquated. Um, I'm wondering if you can. Uh, uh, opine on whether or not the plan can turn things around
1: sure well obviously i i don't have a crystal ball but it seems like it's a step in the right direction and i think the biggest thing in addition to the funding that you mentioned i think it's going up to 67 million dollars uh, that they're asking for but uh the biggest thing that they're doing is uh, opening up who can run the organ procurement network. Because right now there's only one player. The 800-pound gorilla is UNOS, the United Network for Organ Sharing. And they've been the subject of congressional investigations. Uh, Senator Wyden talked about gross mismanagement, both in the way organs are allocated and things like organs left to rot in airports. I mean, some of the reports have been pretty scary so now they're saying you know uh, and in fact secretary becerra says he wants to open up the process so that one contractor doesn't think they own the shop Mm -hmm. so i think that's very important they're also starting a database uh with uh a a kind of a public dashboard Mm -hmm. showing how many people are on wait lists how many people have gotten organs how many donors are out there so people can see Uh, whether
4: progress has been made. Well, that transparency, I think uh, people would find very welcome. Uh, And I think we have time uh, with the uh, amazing opportunity to have the three of you with us to do a go round uh, for each of you or what are are the big healthcare stories and issues on the horizon that we should be keeping our our eye on? Uh, Maybe these are the things that you're gonna be covering real soon, but that we haven't had a chance to ask you about. The biggest thing, I think, uh,
2: in Massachusetts, but also nationally, is the staffing shortage. This affects Mm -hmm. um, every sector of the healthcare economy, from um, physicians' offices to EMS crews to ED staff, hospital staff, post-acute care staff. The staffing shortages, I mean, and this is true of the larger economy as well, but there preventing or presenting incredible hurdles and challenges to just providing care and access. So staffing will definitely be one. Um also as we discussed how we treat the um COVID emergency as it shifts from a pandemic to an endemic, mm-hmm. do we bring back masking as surges inevitably come? Um like we see with surges of the flu? Do we have more boosters for a wider range of the population? And then finally also how federal fights shape healthcare policy locally. Um, These decisions uh, in Texas continue to have ramifications at least for Massachusetts and nationally. And so I'll definitely be paying attention to how those things play out.
1: Great. Um, Speaking of COVID, I'm gonna be looking at uh, reauthorization of funding for pandemic preparedness including looking at the strategic national stockpile, which there were a bunch of issues with last time oh, around, yeah. and also what's continuing to happen with all the issues around drug pricing for COVID vaccines and drug price negotiation, and uh, and also what's gonna happen with uh, telehealth and and issues around that. Great.
3: And to wrap up, um, I want to circle back to what's going to happen with Medicaid, because mm-hmm. we know that the um, big unwinding project um, is beginning, but we don't know yet what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people's lives that are at stake. And that's kind of a subset, even though that was kind of disentangled from the public health emergency, which is ending next month. Um, there are a lot of things they're gonna change when the public health emergency goes away. There are many strands to that. Um, a couple of them my colleagues here have mentioned, uh uh what happens with telehealth and some other things. Um so just watching how the um, country and the healthcare system are gonna react uh once HHS has uh, formally lifted that state of emergency. Do
0: you Big think? Deal. Do you think we'll uh there's been so much recently about chat GPTs and uh AI. Uh, influence in healthcare. Do you think uh, over the next as, as we get through this transition on Medicaid that that that's going to be uh, something that's going to uh, pique people's interest?
3: I think that's in the. I mean, I would put it in the time will tell category. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of a, a hot thing to talk about at the moment, but we don't really know what the uh, what the real implications are going to turn out to be.
0: Well, thank oh, you, Amy uh, Goldstein uh, with the Washington Post, Jessica Bartlett with the Boston Globe and Joyce Frieden uh, with uh, MedPage today. We'll look forward to reading all of your reports in the days ahead and thank you to our audience for joining us as well. And there's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Again, thank you all for the incredible uh, work that you do in the conversation today.
4: Thank you. Thank you. We'll absolutely be following you on all of these issues. (laughs) Thanks so much.
0: All right. Enjoy anybody celebrating Passover. Happy Passover. Take care. Thank you.
3: 50 years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Cornell professor Dr. Joseph J. Finns says it reads like a novel, but it's all true. Peace and health. Available now because healthcare care is a right, not a privilege.